0: Welcome to another episode of the Successful Farming Podcast. I'm the host, Jason Meeker. I'm also the executive producer of Successful Farming Television. It airs on RFD-TV Thursday nights and Sunday nights. If you're one of our regular listeners, you both know that it's been a few weeks since we've had a fresh new episode. And uh, the reason for that is that we just wrapped up season 10 of the TV show. And so I was pretty busy doing that and uh, was unable to to uh, keep up with both the TV show and the podcast. The good news is season 10 is wrapped up and we're back on track and I've got a great slate of new shows lined up for the coming weeks on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe. You can also learn more about this show and other shows by visiting the website at agriculture.com slash podcast. You should also follow Successful Farming on Twitter at Successful Farm. And you should also follow me on Twitter at Jason Meeker updates on the podcast, on the TV show, and everything else that I'm working on, so uh, give me a follow on Twitter. Today, I sat down with Steve Johnson. Steve is the Farm and Ag Business Management Specialist at Iowa State University Extension. His office is here in Polk County, in um, just outside of Des Moines, but he covers the whole state and then some, as you'll find out in the, uh, in the show. He shared some of his insights about how to market the 2017 crop and some tips on managing crop production costs. We also talked a little bit about the proposed USDA budget and the the next farm bill. We talked about that for a little bit too, so stay tuned for that. So uh, thanks for joining us and we're glad to have you. Welcome back to the Successful Farming Podcast. Uh, today I'm with Steve Johnson, Farm Management Specialist for Iowa State Extension. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you do for for uh, Iowa State Extension, Steve. Sure. Um, I've been with Iowa State University
1: Extension since 1999. I serve Central Iowa as the Farm Management Specialist. I typically work um, with producers on a variety of topics, mostly around crop production cost, record-keeping systems, as well as crop marketing, crop insurance, government farm programs. In addition to that, I also work with landowners. Most of those issues are around farmland ownership Mm -hmm. uh, regarding farmland leasing, whether that be a a cash rent, uh, a flexible cash rent, or a traditional crop share lease agreement. Because I'm already working with producers as well as landowners, Um, many of uh, participants at meetings and workshops and seminars might include farm managers, uh, lawyers, as well as accountants, farm business uh, associations, uh, commodity uh, marketers, uh, market analysts. So broad range of people that uh, I would reach through a variety of methods, uh, then face-to-face settings. I do about 100 meetings in the Western Corn Belt, and I see around 10,000 producers face-to-face each year. But through mediums like this, um, I reach around two hundred to 250,000 agribusiness professionals across the Corn Belt. Not, so not just Iowa. You're, not just you're, Iowa. Yeah, you're in? No, I do uh, meetings and outside uh, Illinois, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, South Dakota, Minnesota. So there's no magic state boundaries, And most of these topics regarding
0: row crop agriculture reach beyond right. just Iowa. All right. So even though it's the tax Iowa taxpayers pay pay you, you're you're helping everybody. So True. It's very generous. Of and you a say, lot of times, when,
1: you. well, and a lot of times when I cross state lines, they're for the commodity groups. Right. Okay. Um, they're for uh, agriculture lenders or a cooperative system. So the similar types of needs we see in the Corn Belt aren't limited to just Iowa, but I think Iowa because we're the number one corn producing state. Um I think a lot of people look at Iowa and Iowa state uh, to take that lead definitely. to be involved in crop risk management education
0: definitely so let's let's talk a little bit about twenty seventeen um, It's looking more and more like it's going to be a fourth fourth year in a row of of pretty soft commodity prices what um what are we what are we looking at what are farmers looking at for uh, for best uh, strategies to to try to try to make the most of these these prices again, this well, I do
1: agree that 2017 looks like the fourth year again. In 2013, we saw record net farm income, mm-hmm. record land values, record cash rents, especially here in Iowa, and since then, uh, we've had four consecutive years of record crop production corn, and soybeans. Yeah. Uh, South America's contributed to uh, this large surplus now that we have of not only corn and soybeans, uh, Europe and Asia's contribution to wheat production. So as we look at 2017, large ending stocks confirmed in the June 9th USDA WASDE report It looks like we're going to have around 2.1 billion bushels of corn left over in August of 2018, and we're approaching 500 million bushel of soybeans. That's U.S. ending stocks. So U.S. corn ending stocks are at levels that we've not seen in 29 years, and U.S. soybean ending stocks, levels that we've not seen since the 2005 crop growing season.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So there's really um, – f- well, I don't, I don't know about four, but I, I can think of four, four kind of factors that contribute to, to, a, to a farmer's bottom line, and it's the market price, yield, weather, and costs. So two of those they can't control. You can't control the markets. You can't control the weather. But you, can, you, can, you do have a little bit of say in your yields – Within within the limits of what the weather will give you, and then you can also control your costs. So, what do we? What should farmers be looking at? We mentioned this is the fourth year in a row. So, if they're not controlling some of their some of those fixed costs, they really need to be. What talk about that a little bit? Well, let's step back. Farmers had four years
1: to practice. Yeah, you know, if you went to college for four years, maybe (laughs) you practiced your freshman and sophomore year, but by your junior and senior year. You got this down. That's exactly where we're at in real crop agriculture. Those first few years, 2014, 2015, a farmer was focused on his fixed cost or her fixed cost. And the, the three big fixed costs are Ooh. land, machinery, and family living. There's half of your cost of yeah. production. Wow. And so starting early, making sure that uh, you're adjusting cash rents lower, or you're amortizing existing land debts fixing the interest rate on those mm-hmm. loans and i think the ag lenders that i interact with uh, around 500 a year they were very aggressive early on saying hey This probably isn't going to be one or two years of low crop prices. So I think farmers got some great practice at focusing on land cost and then machinery and equipment. Farmers slowed buying new machinery and equipment. And again, the Section 179 was no longer an incentive. Mm -hmm. So they're probably putting a little bit more into machinery, equipment, repairs. But it's not necessarily going to be new machinery Mm -hmm. and equipment. Probably going to be maybe new used. So. There's two of the three big fixed costs. The third one's evasive. It's family living. Mm -hmm. You know, the majority of Iowa farmers have off-farm income. I I, I think we find that hard to believe. No, if you're farming in Iowa, you're farming full-time, and all of that income's coming from row crop or livestock agriculture, not true. The majority of Iowa farmers have some form of off-farm income, and I think we've seen the dependence upon livestock income. Livestock prices are much higher than anyone would have anticipated. I was doing a lender meeting up in Sioux Falls a few weeks ago, and I said to these ag lenders, do you remember the movie The Graduate? And, you know... Half of them remember a movie yeah. <laughs> in 1967 with Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman was graduating from college, and uh, a businessman came up to Dustin Hoffman, and he said one word. Plastics. One word, plastics. <laughs> so here's what I said to the ag lenders. One word, one word, protein. Protein. Protein is the key to the ag economy. And you might say, no, it's weather. We just need a good drought, not on my farm. <laughs> no. I think protein is the key to growing the ag economy, but the linkage to protein, whether that be meat or milk products, is being driven by access to the feedstuffs. So the U.S. farmers are growing more protein. We're exporting more livestock. We're Mm -hmm. exporting more milk-related products. Uh, Consumers are consuming more. Two of our biggest trade partners are Canada and Mexico – I think protein is really what is going to drive the ag economy long term. But we've got to be able to provide corn and soybeans and wheat and dry distiller's grain Mm -hmm. and soybean meal. And so the fact that I think we're going to have to connect those all together. But going back, over half of Iowa's row crop farmers are dependent upon off-farm income, family living, it's elusive. But yeah. I think you've got to have managed these family living costs and brought those costs back into line because corn prices have dropped 53% in the last four years. Soybean prices have dropped 37%, yeah. and we haven't been able to make that up with yield. So managing the big three fixed cost, starting with land, machinery and equipment, and then family living costs – is where we started, and we didn't start in 2017. We started back in 12, 13, 14 mm-hmm. with understanding
0: the importance of the fixed-cost structure. Okay, so that's that's fixed costs. How about um, variable costs? What do we—some uh, of these—planting's uh, finished, for the most part. There might be, like you mentioned before we started, there might be still some replanting going in eastern Corn Belt areas. But for the most part, the crops in the ground. Um, Should we be? Should farmers be looking at ways to really maximize those yields, no matter what the cost? Or do is it more complicated than that? I think it's complicated. Yeah. And again, the farmer that has a good record keeping system,
1: and they're keeping those records by farm, by field, by crop rotation. This is not a whole. farm record-keeping system Mm -hmm. that you turn the information into the irs once a year this has a lot more More, to do with okay uh, i think this is the challenge i think this is the summer challenge of 2017 we've seen the crop prices rally with the uncertainty of moisture Mm -hmm. but primarily that was the northwest corn belt Mm -hmm. it wasn't widespread So the impact of yield is still out there, but it does appear as though we could have fairly normal growing conditions. We might not get that price bump that we were looking for in June and July. So you've got to focus on yield and you've got to focus on cost. So yes, I don't think it's necessarily spending money that you think you have to. Where is the best investment you can make in row crop agriculture right now And I think you're going to have to do tissue testing. I think Mm. you're going to have to use the technologies to identify what parts of the field. Do I have weeds? Do I have insects? So I think um, a farmer that's really in tune with cost of production on an individual field basis and then being out in these fields scouting on a regular basis, understanding that it might not be a whole farm application, but, yes, maximizing yield – But at the same time, looking at a net return on that herbicide or that additional fertilizer application Mm -hmm. or that insecticide, maybe there's a limitation to what type of return
0: you can get for that particular application. So it's more about margins than yield. We want to maximize the profit, not just necessarily the yield. There might might be places where they can save money by not applying that. Absolutely. What is the n- best net
1: return per bushel or the best net return per acre? If you don't get it from the marketplace, mm-hmm. you're going to have to get it in a combination of higher yields, yet reflecting, hopefully, a reasonable cost. So not applying herbicides to the entire field, not applying a fungicide or In many cases, I think we're going to see some supplemental nitrogen. We were in a field last week and saw farmers Mm -hmm. that were supplementing nitrogen and side-dressing corn that was already at uh, V5, V6 Mm. stage. So I think farmers are into production, but probably targeting where they can get their best return on investment with that application, whether that be a herbicide, a fertilizer— a fungicide or even some sort of an insecticide, but the insecticide probably later in the year mm-hmm. and I'm thinking that's primarily going to be soybeans. Okay.
0: So and this all of this that we've been talking about is what you kind of refer to as rescue operations or is that something different?
1: No, I I, I think it is. I okay. think once the crop's up, I've got several farmers in Iowa that say, once my corn's knee high, I'm halfway home. Mm-hmm. Well guess what? When we're recording this Half of Iowa's corns knee-high. Remember the old saying, knee-high by Mm -hmm. the 4th of July? Well, now we try to be knee-high by the 4th of June. We didn't make it. But the middle of June, Iowa corn crop's pretty far along. Most of the uh, herbicide application's done. There might be some side dressing. There might be some fungicides, I think, applied to corn. But the majority of Iowa cornfields are done. The next time something comes into that field is probably a combine in October, so I don't know that those decisions are going to be as widespread in corn unless it's supplemental nitrogen or a fungicide, but where we've done that in the past, is that going to be the best investment that you can make? I think that's a field-by-field field type of analysis, and I think the use of variable rate technology, mm-hmm. infrared um, aerial imaging, whether that be by a satellite or a plane or a drone, I think that's where the new technologies start to play out. And that I think that's how those farmers justify the technology, looking for variability in your field, whether it's walking into the field or it's using the technology to try to identify where is that variability and what do I need to overcome that issue of limited
0: yield. Mm-hmm. Okay. So those are some some good uh good points about uh in-field managing in-field costs during the growing season. So do you have do you have any more? You talked a little bit about technology. Um uh you 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 mentioned the next time some of these fields are going to see machinery in them is is going to be a combine in October. Is that another th- like lower in- fewer passes in the field absolutely and and that was corn Uh, again i I think most of this corn that's
1: probably approaching you know a vegetative stage of v7 v8 middle of june um right on time to probably um tassel there around the fourth of july Uh, by the middle of july fortunately in iowa um our corn was pretty much planted in a very timely fashion Mm -hmm. so the western belt especially Iowa, Minnesota, the Dakotas, Nebraska, um, did a very good job of of, of getting corn planted, and there wasn't near the replant that we heard about in the Eastern Belt. Yeah, I really think that most of this corn decisions were probably already made. I think the rescue attempts that we're going to see is going to be back over on soybeans, as we saw some soybeans planted late, Uh, Maybe some soybeans that were planted where maybe the early thought was we were going to plant corn. And there's where I see all sorts of issues with late planted beans, uh, poor uh, germination, some limited uh, stand counts, Mm. some replanting still ongoing uh, in Iowa, but pretty much limited to those uh, poorly drained portions of fields. But that's the start. Now here come herbicide applications. I I can see soybean fields that never got treated with pre-plant herbicides, that there's going to be rescue attempts to mm-hmm. make sure we can burn down weeds that are in some of these fields. But let's go back to how farmers plant. I'm seeing more no-till. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing more minimal till, and I'm seeing more crops planted in to cover crops yeah. than I've ever seen in Iowa, and I've been around, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, half a century. So I think that Iowa farmers and surrounding farmers, this use of cover crops is an interesting phenomena where maybe early on farmers were thinking, well, that's soil conservation, water quality, don't disagree. Right Now it's conserving moisture in that particular field. So I really think this issue of no-till, minimal-till, planting directly into cover crops is a lot about moisture management early in the growing season and i'm impressed with some of these fields again great germination and some of those fields that weren't tilled Mm -hmm. and instead received no till or minimal till are under a lot less stress with uh, hot dry conditions that we saw in
0: mid-june all right steve we uh, touched on um fixed costs and crop production costs a little bit. And every January, you come out with uh, the estimated crop production costs for that year. Where do you get those numbers, and what are some of the trends that we're seeing for um, for 2017?
1: Sure. Iowa State University Extension uh, releases our estimated crop production costs each January, Um, Those were released this past January. Uh, Dr. Alejandro Plastina did that work. Most of the data is coming from the Iowa Farm Business Association records. Those are around 600 farms scattered around the state of Iowa, and they provide actual records that are used by the consultants that serve these farmers. But we never know exactly what the 17 costs are going to be, so – Uh, A part of the information that we release in early January is our best estimate. So we're following fertilizer trends. uh, We're following what might be uh, trends in machinery and equipment as well as uh, crop protection, herbicide, insecticide, fungicide. But, yes, that information is our best guess of what will be those production costs for the 2017 crop okay. released each January, and we've been doing this for over 50 years. Wow.
0: And so what do you, what are some of the trends that you're seeing? Sure.
1: You know, the, the trend is definitely lower cost of production. Mm-hmm. Um, cost of production for corn peaked in 2013. For soybeans, it peaked in 2014. Uh, we've seen a, a pretty significant decline in costs of over t- 20 percent for corn production in Iowa um, and uh, nearly that much in soybeans. For the 2017 crop, Iowa State University Extension estimates that the cost of production declined 12 percent from just those of 2016. So we wow. think farmers... Just in one year. That's in 12%. one year. And, wow. and, and, uh, most of that is coming from a combination of lower cash rental rates and lower machinery and equipment costs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's not these variable costs that Farmers want to talk about. Right, uh, it is fertilizer. I will give you that. So the one variable cost that we think's declined is primarily fertilizer, and secondary to that is probably fuel. Uh, we're seeing lower uh, fuel prices, but it's uh, the big one is cash rents are declining. Okay. Cash rents have declined around nineteen percent in Iowa from their highs of twenty thirteen to. Our estimates of 2017 of 219 dollars per tillable acre. Now that's an average. Mm-hmm. Well, we were at 270 wow. in 2013. Yeah. So definitely, farmers are renegotiating cash rental rates. We're seeing a trend of more flexible leases uh, using base cash rents, and then maybe an incentive for the landlord, but only if the yield times the price minus the costs are positive. And there might be a chance to use the flex lease. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, 12% decline in corn production costs just from 16, 16 to 17 and a 9% in soybean production okay. cost. Still. So if Iowa State's close, they're saying that farmers are doing a good job of reducing cost. Not all farmers have that ability to reduce their land cost, or what we call cash rent equivalent. In fact, they might have had to re-amortize their land loan, Mm -hmm. so perhaps that land cost is actually higher than it was. But as we approach uh, four years of tight crop profit margins, I think a part of the solution for many of our row crop farmers have been to improve their record-keeping system, uh, separate fixed costs from variable costs, and then focus on the big three fixed costs. Again, that was land, machinery and equipment, and family living costs. Mm -hmm. Now I think many of these farms are fine-tuning, saying, hey, about as far as I can go on the big three, Mm -hmm. now I'm gonna focus on the variable cost and that's where I think we're at in the spring and summer of 2017. Are there some things that maybe I don't have to spend additional money or maybe I can trade some of my labor for somebody else's machinery and yeah. equipment or technology mm-hmm. as opposed to just writing a check and saying I, I need to go out and buy this when we know these margins are likely going to be tight right. again this summer and especially this fall and winter?
0: Kind of going back to uh, uh, land rents and stuff like that, uh, I know you were at a conference a while back, and so maybe this isn't really even relevant anymore. Um, But our markets editor, Mike McGinnis, told me about some of the uh, new and creative ways farmers and landowners are renegotiating Mm -hmm. some of their contracts. Maybe talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, It's not going to come into play for a few months, but maybe there's something... somebody's not heard of before or something that they can, they can do to maybe incentivize keeping, keeping the, the, the owner happy, even though prices might be declining.
1: Well, I think a lot of these have everything to do with the relationship that mm-hmm. the landowner has with that tenant operator. I think the tenant operators are becoming much more in tune with the needs and expectations that the landowners have. So when we're out, um, teaching at meetings and workshops, seminars, videos, we're teaching the importance of uh, tenant operators to share yields, uh, to share fertility records, to share information with landlords. Rather than hiding that information, thinking that the landlord's just going to raise your cash rent, there is a value of the landlord knowing about that information. This morning I received a phone call from a landlord because the tenant operator says we've got some drainage issues on the farm and we've got to make some improvements in tile, well, that ability of that tenant operator to share yield maps, Mm -hmm. you know, to share planting maps. Now many of your listeners are heading for the Farm Service Agency to certify their planted acres and complete their FSA Form 578, or they're heading for their crop insurance agent to turn over information, especially records from Planting monitors, which we know don't always match the certified planted acres, so I think there's a lot more openness of tenant operators of sharing related information with landowners, and especially I've seen it around yields, fertility maps, uh, drainage concerns that we see on a farm, and. In many cases, that relationship turns into a a renegotiation of not only the fixed cash rent, but the flexible cash rents. Iowa leads the nation in flexible cash rents, and there's a number of types of flexible Mm -hmm. cash rents, but a typical flexible cash rent, we call it the Iowa flex lease, is a base rent guaranteed. That the tenant operator is going to guarantee an amount. Let's say it's $200 per acre for 2017. But that tenant operator would also pay a flexible portion, a bonus, at the end of the year in December. But that bonus would be based on the actual farm's yields in 2017 times the actual cash price. And that cash price is probably a harvest delivery bid and a simple average maybe over 10 months, of what that tenant operator could have got if they delivered their corn or soybeans to the local marketplace. But it's a cash price. Yield times price is the gross crop income. Now, subtract the estimated cost of production by acre. Separate corn from Mm -hmm. soybeans. Those numbers might come from that actual farmer. They might come from this 2017 crop cost estimates from Iowa State. So gross crop income minus gross crop expenses, and the expenses are reflecting that base rent, a typical flex lease is probably about 33% of that net. A third of the net, and that net reflects income minus expenses. So if that particular tenant operator has good yields uh, and those prices at that local elevator co-op, maybe they're delivering to an ethanol plant or soybean crush plant, sharing that information. So that tenant operator is sharing yields. Mm -hmm. That tenant operator is also tracking cash price at, at that marketplace. And that tenant operator is sharing expenses or they're using average Iowa State costs of production yield times price minus expenses, that net times 33 percent comes out to be roughly a potential bonus for the landowner and the opportunity for that tenant operator to share additional information. Mm -hmm. And so don't be so dependent upon a a fixed lease that you set a year ago or six months ago or three years ago. A real-time lease, the Iowa flex lease, is – Continuing to gain traction across the Corn Belt because we think that is probably more fair than yeah. a fixed cash rent. I wish we could go back to crop share, <laughs> a 50 50 crop share, but we're not going back. Right. Yeah. As these uh, landowners age, they recognize the risk associated with row crop production, and, and most landowners don't want to be involved in in marketing or crop insurance or understanding government farm programs or storing corn and beans past harvest, waiting for higher futures or better basis opportunities. So I think there continues to be a place for these flexible cash leases. If you've got a professional farm manager, explore them. But most of these flex leases need to get beyond based on a percent. Of bushels based on a percent of price. And I think these flex leases need to reflect cost of production because we have not seen this wholesale reduction Mm -hmm. in cost, even though average cash corn prices have fallen over 50% and soybeans by nearly 40%. We've only seen cost of production decline around 20% for corn and 15% for soybeans in this
0: four year period. Let's reflect a net if we're going to use a flexible cash lease. that that The flexible cash lease sounds like a really good way to align incentives with both the tenant and the landowner. So it's a much, like you said, building a relationship rather than maybe an adversarial relationship where they might feel like they have differing incentives. Um, I, I for...
1: agree. I, I think it was the flexible leases that led to the uh, tenant operators Sharing yield information mm-hmm. that led to the tenant operators sharing yield information. And then the landlord might come back and say, Well, what about the fertility on these fields? And now the tenant operators sharing fertility maps. Mm-hmm. In some cases, the landlords are paying half the cost of soil testing. So I think there's a win win out there. I don't think we have to have this adversarial relationship you described. Mm-hmm. I think we're kind of all in it together, Mm -hmm. so we don't have to have this cash lease negotiation every year, and in Iowa, it's in August, because we (laughs) terminate six months before March 1st. I think we need to recognize that nobody's making the kind of money that we were making back in 11, 12, and even 13, and these profit margins are going to be extremely tight in 2017, so creating... Improve communication and trust
0: with these landlords is going to be critical. Great, that's that's really helpful information. I think so. Thank you. Um, so we're, I want to move into something that uh, have you take out your crystal ball, um, talk a little bit about uh, the next farm bill and the fu- kind of the future of um, crop insurance. What what do you what do you see? And we didn't talk about this ahead of time, so oh, if you don't I have, say, I knew if, it was coming. If so you, uh, if, <laughs> from, so, that's, yeah. so. So, what do you what are you seeing from from your vantage point? Yeah. Uh,
1: again, I, I think the discussion is about a proposal that came um, from the Trump administration to reduce uh, farm program expenditures for the 2018 budget. I don't think it's going to happen. Right. Uh, again, we saw this from the Obama administration for three consecutive years. I don't think the press made that big a deal out of it, but now <laughs> the press likes to make a big deal out of it. No, uh, the budget's going to remain tight, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But you have a precursor now of an administration that recognizes that federal expenses are too high and we're going to have to control costs. So – the proposal would be to revise crop insurance and reduce the amount of subsidy that's sitting on the harvest price, okay. which is of concern. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. All right. In addition to that, limiting the amount of subsidy to 40000 per entity, which in Iowa is going to catch our farms at about 1,500 acres. Mm-hmm. So if you've got two entities, a husband and wife, around 3000 But if you've got a single entity, you're only going to insure full insurance on about 1,500 acres of row crop. That probably is of concern for larger operations. Yeah. They probably want to think about their entity structure. But also, are we going to have an ARC PLC program? Now, these ARC payments are fading fast. Mm-hmm. They're going to be basically 20 bucks an acre in Iowa in 2017 from the 2016 crop, and beans are going to be less than $10 per base acre. But I think that budget is telling you what the administration wants to see in the next farm bill. So I'm not worried about 2018. Okay. I think it's business as usual in row crop agriculture. But there aren't going to be our county payments for the 2018 crop because the revenue that triggers those has likely now declined. But still, the base revenue that triggered them uh, likely has declined. It's the new farm bill. And I'm not even going to call it a 2018 farm bill because, quite honest, it's not going to get done by 2018. (laughs) So the 19 or the 20 farm bill might try to include some of these reduced expenditures for crop insurance subsidies as well as limitations. And those limitations would be on crop insurance premiums, and they would also be on government farm program payments. But I think the bigger question is – Will we see that in the 2018 crop? In my opinion, no. Okay. If you're going to make changes in crop insurance for 2018, they better be in play in August of 17 because winter wheat goes in the ground. Right. So I think what happens is, yeah, they were proposed for the 2018 budget. Congress is going to need to pass a budget by September 30th, and I'm guessing they probably passed that at about 11 p.m. on September 30th. <laughs> but it doesn't include these major wholesale changes to crop insurance and government farm programs. But that component will go into this negotiation that's just starting, uh, more hearings on mm-hmm. the farm bill. But this farm bill that likely uh, will try to put in place will be for the 2019 crop. Okay. And if Congress can't come to terms with this next farm bill, we might not even put that in place till the twenty twenty crop. But I think that that sounding board is less government expenditures, less crop insurance subsidies, limitations as far as net farm income reduced from nine hundred thousand to five hundred thousand again, that'll be an average over a three year period okay. using net farm income. I think should be a message to your farm audience. There are changes that are coming, but I don't believe they're going to be in the 18 crop. And I don't think we're going to lose crop insurance, but maybe the subsidy levels and how that's administered, but even reducing the subsidy on the harvest price, which, you know, the majority of all farmers use, and we use it as a part of a pre-harvest marketing strategy. And that is that ability to try to sell new crop bushels when we're above the projected price mm-hmm. for 2017 that's 3.96 a bushel corn that's the simple average of December corn futures in the month of February
0: okay.
1: we're there we mm-hmm. we spent about a week above those levels in, in early to mid June for soybeans that number was 1019 again that's November soybean futures simple average in the month of February the ability to use the higher of the spring or harvest price Farmers want to use the harvest price, okay. so they can be more aggressive in pre-harvest marketing. I, I would have some concerns if farmers suddenly are going to have to pay a higher subsidy. But that's reality. Farmers are going to recognize that with twenty trillion dollars of federal debt, they're probably going to have to expect there's changes coming. I just don't think those changes will
0: be for the 2018 crop year. Not going to happen overnight. So to kind of wrap it all up, with um, the with you mentioned the three ninety six projected um, price for corn, December futures are tra- trading ob- above that right now. They're both four. They were both four dollars uh, late last week. Anyway, haven't looked at them this morning yet. What are some uh, pre harvest marketing strategies that farmers should be looking at based on those numbers?
1: Well, we encourage farmers to have a marketing plan, and that marketing plan has both a time objective and a price objective. And that time objective for corn is mid-June, and it's mid-June. Right. If corn's going to rally, corn typically rallies into the middle of June, and it's not unusual to see that be the first two weeks of June. So the time objective for corn tends to be by mid-June, you finished old crop sales, you're making new crop sales. The new crop sales trigger has a price objective, and that price objective is three dollars and ninety-six cents per bushel. It's the projected price. It's the crop insurance price. Anyone using revenue protection knows that if you sell when December futures are above three ninety six, mm-hmm. you're guaranteed at least three ninety six. So your APH, actual production history on your farmer farms, times your level of coverage, probably eighty to eighty five percent, and three ninety six why wouldn't you have sold some new crop bushels when futures were above 396 mm-hmm. we've been waiting patiently mm-hmm. since the last day of february and boom we're there june right. 6th so june 7th the, yeah june 8th june 9th is be disciplined mm-hmm. utilize the tools that are out here Quit trying to outguess the National Weather Service. The USDA reports and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange focus on what you can control. The ability to pre-harvest market some new crop bushels, especially when new crop corns above 396, Mm -hmm. was there. And what we've learned the last couple years— These markets like to rally for 5 to 15 days, and oftentimes these rallies don't last very long. So have a marketing plan in writing. You know your estimated cost of production. It's based on your APH from previous years because you don't know this year's yields. You've got cash flow concerns, and you probably don't have enough storage to store Mm 2 or 3 years' worth of crops. I would have used the rally in early to mid June corn. The rally last winter that we saw in soybeans, mm-hmm. I know we lost over $1.20 a bushel from our highs of new crop beans at 1043, but I would use that rally. I don't think we're going to get back to that 1019 projected price for soybeans. And so the likelihood right. is we're going to have a lot of 2017 crop that didn't get priced. And a lot of 2016, especially corn that's in the way that affects margins, I think farmers are going to have to be much more disciplined. They're going to have to tie their cash flow planning into their uh, available grain storage on-farm, try to avoid storing bushels commercially for much more than two months for beans and six months for corn. This is getting kind of crazy but i think the farm financial pressure will be greater this fall and winter than we've seen it in a long time but not for those farms that are disciplined in controlling cost and managing risk and primarily that risk of market price opportunities have been there over the last 6 to 8 months farmers have to take advantage of the uncertainty of production whether that production's in south america mm-hmm. or the northern hemisphere
0: well, Steve, I appreciate you coming in this morning, taking the time to talk about a lot of these uh, issues that, that uh, farmers need to be aware of, and, uh, and hopefully some of our listeners will take, uh, take your advice, and uh, appreciate you coming in. Thanks. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. Uh, if you want more information about this episode or other episodes of the show, you can visit our website, agriculture.com slash podcast. You should also follow me on Twitter at Jason Meeker. If you like the show, go ahead and subscribe in iTunes or whatever podcast app you use and give us some feedback. You can email the show. Our address is podcast at podcastagriculture.com. Again, thanks to Steve Johnson for joining us today, and thanks to you for listening. We'll see you next time.